Hi, I'm Tim Rude, Head of Industry Relations here at Citus AMC. Welcome to the latest episode of On the Hill. So I want to welcome my very special guest today, Jim Parrott. Jim, thanks very much for joining me today. Thanks, Tim. I appreciate you having me. You know, Jim, I was thinking about this morning. What I love about this interview, at least one of the things, is that you and I have disagreed about the GSEs rather publicly for about eight years. Yet still, you know, we're able to have spirited, substantive, and civil conversations about the housing and housing finance markets that we're both obviously passionate about. And in a world that's truly abandoned the beautiful art of respectful disagreement, I just think it's notable. I appreciate that. At a safe distance with, uh, with Zoom only, though. I'm not sure we could do this in a bar. <laughs> Probably so, brother. Hey, man, before we get started, I got to ask a favor. You're friends with George Clooney, right? <laughs> yes, George and I are, uh, are friends. So can you do me a favor? Can you talk to him about the prices of Casamigos tequila? I mean, it's 80 bucks a bottle now, which is super outrageous. As a consequence, I haven't even contributed my kids' 529 plan since 2018. I'm just you know, saying it's, it's getting to be a real burden, Jim. <laughs> okay, I'll, uh, I'll raise that next time we talk. I'll put in a nod for a subsidy for friends and family. <laughs> if you need me to go to Lake Cuomo and deliver it personally, man, I'm, I'm your guy. <laughs> okay. Yeah, and I back to the interview. So let me hit on some of the highlights of Jim's bio. So Jim is a non-resident fellow at the Urban Institute and co-owner of Parrot Ryan Advisors. Jim served in the White House as a senior advisor at the National Economic Council, where he led the team charged with counseling the cabinet and the president on housing issues. Earlier in the Obama administration, he was counsel to Secretary Sean Donovan at HUD. Jim was also a litigator in New York and North Carolina, and he served in Sri Lanka with the Peace Corps. He has a bachelor's in philosophy from UNC, a master's in philosophy from University of Washington, and a JD from Columbia Law School. Impressive, Jim. Thanks. It took me a long time to settle down. We'll, uh, we'll just put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well. Hey, man, so one of the uh, reasons I wanted you to join the podcast today is that you were essentially Obama's housing guy, right? So during a tumultuous time in the country, great financial crisis, and you now advise policymakers on the Biden team and folks on Capitol Hill during yet another housing, at least related crisis, although the origins and management of each of them is you know, completely different. But just by juxtaposition, a quick example. So last time, it was all about protecting taxpayers and ending bailouts. This time, everyone and everything gets a bailout. Not to seem uncharitable, but that's the way it's played out. Last time we had home prices falling like a stone and a national foreclosure crisis was developing. Plus, we were dealing with a huge liquidity crisis. This time, values are basically on a runaway train going up. You couldn't foreclose even if you wanted to because of the moratoriums. And instead, you have millions in forbearance plans, millions of people. Yeah, you're right. The, the difference between this crisis and the last is pretty uncanny. I mean, last time you had this collapsing demand, tidal wave of oversupply, all creating this cycle of falling home prices, rising negative equity, and, and a spike in foreclosures. And then this time you've got, in some ways, like a negative image of that. You've got a dramatic supply shortfall. You've got solid demand. And the combination of those two is leading to a, a rise in home prices that's putting homeownership out of control or out of reach, rather, for for lots of folks. And then you've got where before you had millions of homeowners facing a loss of their home through foreclosure. This time around, you've got millions of renters that are facing a loss of their home in eviction. So it's all sort of flipped on its head. And then another piece that's quite different, and you kind of imp implied this or alluded to it, is the politics of it are 
are wildly different. Last time around, you had this almost overwhelming concern with moral hazard, with helping the wrong people. I mean, if you remember, the Tea Party got started with Rick Santelli's rant on the, the Chicago trading floor about, about HAMP, about policymakers helping folks that couldn't pay their mortgage anymore. And that, that dynamic back then had this really a chilling effect on what we and the administration were trying to do on the policy. And it really gave us a sense of wariness about what we thought we could actually pull off policy-wise. And so we ended up spending a ton of time worrying about how to avoid helping the wrong people, really so much so that we probably didn't help as many of the right people as we could have because we were over-designing the initial programs to avoid moral hazard and helping the wrong folks. And so they wound up being arguably probably too complex, too stingy, too slow to get the money out, all of which, you know, we sort of came to regret later in later years. And I think fast forwarding to today, I think a lot of the political weight of that concern has been lifted. And now folks are, are focusing much more on the sort of importance of the speed and, and magnitude of the relief getting it all out as quickly as possible and at scale rather than sort of micro-targeting exactly who's going to be helped. And so the lesson out of all that, I think, which I think is a good lesson, is that the policymakers on both sides of the aisle this time around are prioritizing speed and scale, which means they're you know making programs a little simpler, a little more flexible, which is having the effect of at least giving us a shot to get the the relief out sooner rather than later and at the scale needed. And that, that we just weren't in a position to do that back in 2009, 2010. The politics were so tricky and so prohibitive, especially after TARP, that all of the program design winded up being just sort of unduly complicated in those first couple of years. And I think these guys have, have learned that lesson, I think, more or less. Yeah, the politics you never would imagine are actually worse this time around, yet we passed multi-trillion dollar legislation unanimously in a few days, maybe a week. And you remember the the hand wringing and gnashing of teeth um, last go around for whatever it was, $800 billion for TARP. Yeah. I mean, remember the first go around of TARP failed, right? You remember you had a, you had Paulson and company tried and failed to get it passed. The market collapsed and that, that sort of forced Congress's hand to get its act together and, and, and come back to the table to pass it. I think, you know, that the shadow of that, the, those early moments that were sort of cast over this. I and mean, you had a Republican administration once again in a position to, to pass it. This time they succeeded with much less handering. I mean, you've got handering now a little bit, but still that's after having got trillions of dollars out the door. So it's a pretty different ballgame. Yeah. I was, th- I was thinking this morning, not to be insensitive about it, but I was like, you know what's really different about this go around than last time is Biden's acronym game is so woefully deficient to Obama's acronym game. You remember all of that harp, hamp, tarp, sigtar. Yeah, right, right. I mean, it was, it was like, a, it was like, we joked that there was an acronym generating <laughs> office in the basement of treasury somewhere that was generating a, an endless supply of billion dollar acronyms. All right. Well, hey, let's move to a little more personal side of it. You're obviously very well known, but how many people know much about you? You know, and people are interested. I'm very interested in things like, you know, how you ended up going from joining the Peace Corps and working in Sri Lanka in the first place, and then how you pivoted from, you know, inoculating babies in the South Asia. I'm sure it was more like community development, but the other one's funnier. You know, <laughs> how you go from that to advising two presidents on housing finance policies. I mean, how did this all come together? Yeah, I mean, it was a pretty uh, a pretty circuitous path from 
from Sri Lanka to the White House. I, mean, I, I went to, you did a little of this in the CV, but I went through graduate school and philosophy after that, then law school and being a lawyer and, and all that. But I, I will say that the, of all of the things that I have done in my past, the Peace Corps bit was probably the one thing that prepared me most for the White House, which folks typically wouldn't expect. They assume that the law gig would have been the thing that prepares you, but not, not so much in my case. The, the Peace Corps experience, I was actually supposed to be a liaison between this very poor village in Sri Lanka and the agriculture department. And we were there like three months training, learning the language and whatnot. And a week before I was to be dropped in the village, there was an election and they disbanded the agriculture department. So there was no, nobody to liaise with. And the Peace Corps said, well, we're going to drop you off the village anyway. You know, good luck, do what you can. And so you know, the little van drops me and my little backpack off in this village, no power, mud huts, you know, the whole nine yards with basically no directive at all. I had no, you know, rule book for what I was supposed to be doing. And, and the only advice I got was, you know, let us know if you get sick, basically, and, and we'll send you your monthly allowance at the local post office. And, and the reason why that ended up being relevant a decade or whenever later when I was in the White House is folks had this misimpression that the White House is this enormous, you know, several thousand person organization with gazillions of staffers supporting everybody who makes any decisions. But in fact, it's remarkably sort of thinly staffed. And, and those who are in any position of seniority have really a, a fair amount of latitude to think about and operate in the space that they oversee in, in the ways that they see fit. And so with the National Economic Council, which is where I, I was, in essence, they're like, I don't know, 10 people around a table, each of whom has a policy area that they're sort of in charge of, you know, mine being housing. And their job is to coordinate with or oversee all of the senior folks in the administration across all the agencies that have responsibility for their topic area. So for me, it was coordinating this process with treasury undersecretaries and, and assistant secretaries and HUD folks and OMB and, and, and coming up with a process to you know, decide what's problematic in your space, what needs to be addressed, how to address it, and then working with that group to, to come up with recommendations for the president. And when you walk into this job, there is no rule book. Nobody hands you some tome of things that you're supposed to follow in order to, to do your job. You're in essence just told, look, you need to pull together whoever in the administration is most senior on these things and knows most about them. And you guys as a group need to come to some agreement about what it is we and the president need to do. And that's a pretty unnerving prospect at the beginning, that lack of a roadmap and that mandate to figure it out, given the stakes is it's a pretty jaw dropping thing. Once you, once you sort of realize that's what the job description is. And it feels in some ways very much like sort of that day when I got out of van with my little, my little backpack, looking at my little mud hut home, no great idea what on earth I was going to do, you know, for the next two years. And so that experience uh, of having to figure it out in Sri Lanka, sort of building out your structure, your process, your sort of way of, of sorting through how to be helpful was in some ways not unlike what, what I wound up having to do much later uh, in DC. So the law gig was completely different because you're given, you know, phone books full of rules you're supposed to follow and phone books full of prescriptive paths one's supposed to trod. The White House is uh, about as different as you can get from all that. Yeah, it had to be fascinating. And it, it's kind of like being an entrepreneur on some level. It's just you have to, you have to really embrace and be comforted with ambiguity. Like yeah, being able to yeah. tan in cloudy on a cloudy day, you know. But it's yeah, it's, but it's very 
it's great in the sense that you don't have to contend with sort of bureaucratic infrastructure that can in many settings be an impediment to getting things done. I mean, you're sort of in the White House sitting on top of all these bureaucratic infrastructures. And there are, in many cases, levers that you get to deploy. You're not on the receiving end of the deployment of the levers. So in a way, it's very freeing to do what you think needs to be done and to allocate resources and uh, and the like to, to getting done what you need to get done. I mean, this, again, the stakes are high, so it's a little unnerving. But once you get over that, the, the sort of leverage you've got in that position to get done what you think needs to get done is um, is is pretty remarkable. Yeah, I don't think, I mean, I don't think people understand the mechanics of DC to begin with, but when you get into the discrete things like the OMB or the NEC, they're really opaque to, you know, the common person, Joe Lunchbucket. But the NEC side, I always found was interesting because you're really, you're the president's lieutenant, if you will, and you're there to kind of adjudicate issues between disagreements between, you know, um, different agency heads and uh, pushing policy priorities, or it just seems like a fascinating gig. Yeah, it's great. I mean, it was put in place because the White House found that they had all of these agencies coming with overlapping equities, different opinions about what to do. And so you'd have Treasury and Commerce coming and with contrary proposals about this, that, and the other, and you'd have Justice and HUD coming with, with contrary proposals. And there was no obvious way or expertise within the White House to figure out you know, what the right course forward was with their two experts saying opposite things. So the NEC is in some sense intended to bring the expertise across agencies together and figure out how to take all that expertise and channel it into a single process that comes up with a single view of what the hell's going on and what you ought to do about it. I mean, it, it can be a little hairy because you're you're adjudicating between cabinet secretary level folks and they don't always agree. And, you know, they, they are sometimes pretty contentious, but at the end of the day, it, it makes for a much more efficient, a much more efficient process where you can go to the president with, you know, the economic part of the cabinet that has already duped all this out at the lower level. And they get to say, you know, Mr. President, we think you ought to think about this issue as, you know, in the following way, we think the following options are A, B, and C. And in some cases you've got differences of opinion, but even there, you're just transparent about it. You say, you know, your treasury secretary thinks you ought to do X and your HUD secretary thinks you ought to do Y. And then you let each make their case. And the whole thing is set up in a way that if done right, you know, minimizes the, the chances of stupid decisions and increases the probability of, of the right kind of decision. I don't have a great sense of how the last administration handled all that, but I do know that those prior to, to the last administration handled it roughly the same way. I mean, George Bush, you know, their NEC was roughly like our NEC. And I think the current NEC is much like ours was. So I think there's a kind of a useful process embedded in the system there. Yeah, sounds super interesting. All right, well, let's pivot back to housing policy, you know, in particular, GSE reform, you know, GSE reform, which you and I, of course, have debated in the past, but just like, you know, juxtaposing the two crises, you, you look at it, it's hard to ignore that even the topic of GSE reform is drastically different this time around than, say, last crisis. You know, last time reform seemed more principles-based. That, that was my point of view. Policymakers took issues with the business models of the GSEs. They thought that their charters were flawed. You know, since Fannie Mae was privatized by what Lyndon Johnson to help pay for the Vietnam War in the late 60s. So, you know, in my mind, it felt like the Obama administration was really looking for a villain, some entity, some entities, you know, that they viewed as venal, perceived bad actors, that they could hang for the crimes that resulted in millions losing their homes and the economic carnage that accompanied the collapse of the national housing market. Of course, many 
disagree with my point of view, but again, that's just my sense. You know, given all that, obviously, the ongoing litigation over the hailing of conservatorship during the Obama years, we'll have to obviously skip over some of the intricate details, but maybe you can take us through, you know, how the mood and thinking has changed in D.C. about the, the role and fate of the GSEs. Yeah, there's been a, a, a really interesting shift in that since then. So, so if you go back to the 2009-10 era, it's really important to understand the political environment back then. And, and it's important to start with sort of where Republicans were, because coming out of the, the crash, the relatively universally held position on the Republican side of the aisle was that it was the government's role in supporting the housing market generally and the GSEs sort of role in supporting it in particular that, that drove us off this cliff. And so for them, almost to a person, at least those who spoke up about it, sort of reform, housing finance reform, was almost definitionally a matter of winding down the GSEs and getting rid of the backstop. I mean, so not just beating up on Fannie and Freddie, which was, of course, part of the, the flavor of the day on the right anyway, especially, but much more precariously and unnervingly getting rid of the government backstop altogether. And it wasn't just a throwaway line, their political narrative, it was the sort of centerpiece for their explanation for what had gone wrong and, and thus sort of what needed to be fixed. And so with that as a backdrop, we were trying to steer the debate away from getting rid of the government backstop because we viewed that to be a really sort of unnerving prospect and trying to, to steer the discussion, the debate towards how to provide the backstop in, in a safer way, in essence. I mean, it seems kind of obvious now. We all almost take for granted the importance of the backstop, but it was really far from taken for granted at, at, at that moment. I mean, I, I can't tell you how many times uh, in the White House and an EOB on the Hill, I had to sort of go through what the connection was between the backstop and the 30-year fixed rate mortgage and the MBS market and how all these things fit together and how if you gave up the government backstop, you know, what would happen to the 30-year fixed rate mortgage? Because on the right, especially, even in the middle to some degree, there was just this almost cavalier dismissal of the need for the government in the space and this suspicion that there was something inherently distorting about the role of the government in the market that was to blame for everything that we were sort of digging out from under in 2009, 2010. And so we, in administration, were, were trying to come up with systems or a system that would embed the government backstop in what could be broadly accepted as a safer, less risky structure, which, which meant for us and for others at the time, one that was less reliant on the, the two to fail duopoly at the middle of it. But to, to your point, I think both sides of the debate or all gazillion sides of the debate at that point were sort of wildly theoretical in how they were going about this at the time. It was very much a sort of everybody get your whiteboards out, design your, your ideal platonic you know, housing finance system. And we were all, I think, designing sort of in a sense from scratch to solve for whatever political and, and economic challenges we thought you needed to solve for in all of this. Over time, of course, I think most of us who stayed involved with this came to realize that that was really the wrong way of going about it, that the, the risk of failure, the, the cost of transition of, from the system that we had then and still have now to whatever the system one might you know come up with on a whiteboard, that the cost and risk of all that were just too high. And so what gradually happened in the years after that has happened since is we, we have sort of collectively shifted from this, what would you do if you could start over exercise to an exercise in, in trying to figure out what in the system we've got today works pretty well, what doesn't work well, and, and how do you migrate what we've got today 
into, into something that preserves what worked and, and sort of discards um, what doesn't. That, that, again, seems pretty obvious today, sort of like the importance of the government backstop, but it, it would have been an impossible way to engage in the debate back in 2009, just because of where, especially the Republican side of the aisle had started with things. So if you wanted to get anything done in a bipartisan way, you really had to start from the, the almost the assumption that you needed dramatic structural reform. The question just being sort of what flavor of dramatic structural reform you want. And I think what's happened since is we've come to see that, you know, we've got a lot of structural reform done in conservatorship. We're probably closer now to a a healthier system than, than we thought we could have been in conservatorship only. And so now the exercise is, all right, well, now that we're here where we are, what works in the current system, what doesn't work so well, and how do you, with that in mind, transition from where we are now to something that ultimately is more stable? It's a pretty dramatically different discussion now, both economically, politically. If anything, now we're, we're sort of over comfortable with the status quo, overcomfortable with the historical system, perhaps rather than overly bearish about it. Yeah, a dramatic transition over 10 years for sure. Yeah, I remember talking to folks about this is like, look, no one would have engineered this system, right? I mean, this housing finance system, certainly not a free market, you know, democracy. And there's there's really no policy equivalent to methadone, right? I mean, it's, <laughs> right, right. You just getting us off the government support for housing, it's just brutal. That's the methadone reference. But you know, now it seems like do no harm is the first, second, and third principles of housing reform. And that, of course, leads you to kind of the status quo for things like Fannie and Freddie. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, it'll be interesting to see where it goes from here. You know, it, it feels like we're you know, we may be entering another stage in, in this debate. You know, we've been in the stage of the last four years where with where the Trump administration was, the focus was on, you know, getting ready to go out and getting them back into private ownership and all that. My sense is that's going to change with this administration. So it'll be interesting to see you know, what you title these chapters, but what the title of the next chapter is going to be. Well, hey, let's jump to Biden's housing policy. So his priorities and the administration's objectives around, you know, housing, housing finance. So, you know, I've gone through things like the the Unity Plan, which seems to cover much of Biden's goals when it comes to tackling housing and the housing finance reform. Much of it I I really like. I mean, things like down payment assistance for first-time homebuyers, expanded Section 8 access and eligibility, tackling a very tricky topic around exclusionary zoning, and really coming at the housing market challenges from the supply side. Now, I'll say, however, that there are some things that that do concern me. I, I, I don't love the idea of a public credit reporting agency or the, the tone and language about increased enforcement and penalties for originators and servicers, you know, really, especially at a time, you know, where the Biden team is looking to widen the credit box. I'm also deathly afraid of the extended forbearance or the foreclosure moratoriums. I'm afraid that they really are going to long-term going to disrupt the integrity of the housing market. And, you know, I, I can wrap my head around the extended forbearances, the eviction moratoriums, assuming that these are, are paid for and on budget, preferably, but lift the foreclosure moratorium sooner than later, just because I've seen so many examples during the housing crisis where if you extended and pretended in an effort to be charitable, which obviously in the COVID times, there isn't a person alive who isn't thinking about being more charitable, but at the same time, you have to think about the long-term implications and what happens to investor confidence, owner-occupants or non-owner-occupants who are looking at a housing market after, say, 
Forbes or Fortune runs an article about, hey, look, this is all a scam. There's 4 million people living in homes that they haven't made a payment on in two years. So then gulp, we all of a sudden that hot demand shrinks. Then we find ourselves you know, on the eve of a potential another housing crisis. So can you take us through the general thinking around housing, housing finance for the Biden team? And does any of it concern you? Yeah. So let, let me start with that last piece first. Otherwise, I'll, I'll forget about it. So the, the timeline, foreclosure timeline piece is interesting. And I agree with much of what you said. Here's how I think about it. It's a matter of getting the timing right. And the eviction moratorium is kind of similar in that sense. So to me, the right way to think about when to lift a foreclosure moratorium is when you're confident that you've got the loss mitigation waterfalls from FHA and the GSEs sort of in place and in a way that you're confident are going to work. And they've just, as you probably know, allocated $10 billion in this, this bill that was assigned into law last week. You want to make sure that that $10 billion is connecting into those loss mitigation waterfalls in a way that minimizes the folks that you know flow through all the way to the end uh, into foreclosure. So, but once you've got all that set up, you know, then as a policymaker, you should be confident that the system will sort out the, the relief in the way that is most sustainable economically, both at the micro, that is borrower level, and at the macro, that is community level. And you got you to gotta trust it to, to handle that, that well. And the, the downside, the cost of leaving a foreclosure moratorium in place forever is, you know, abandoned houses and uh, abandoned properties. And somewhat ironically, the very communities that you're trying to help, you know, with the foreclosure moratorium, so historically underserved and, and poorer communities, wind up bearing the brunt of this indefinite, you know, foreclosure moratorium simply because they're the places where you're going to find these abandoned properties and you're going to wind up with, with blight and the like that we wound up with last time around. So you, you want to avoid that. So you want to time it in a way that you're confident that the policymaking infrastructure is in place to handle providing a relief and the economy is as stable as you're going to get it over the near term. So it feels like we're, you know, this summer is probably the right time to, to lift it because you'll be in a position where the infrastructure is in place. The $10 billion of relief is probably docked to loss mitigation waterfalls in the way they should be. And the economy is, at least in the United States, beginning to, you know, to come back in earnest, you know, maybe you push it out into the early fall, but you probably don't want to push it much beyond that because the cost begins to weigh the, the outweigh the benefit. So that's kind of how I think about it. eviction moratorium. It's kind of similar, you know, you want to make sure that you don't lift that until all this money that Congress has just appropriated has made its way to states and in turn made its way to renters so that you can save as many as can be saved. And then once you've gotten that sorted out, um, you know, then you can, uh, eventually li lift the eviction moratorium so that, again, the system can sort of uh, allocate its its relief in the way that it makes the most sense. You don't want to lift it too early because if you lift it too early before the relief's gotten out, you know, you wind up pushing a bunch of folks out onto the streets unnecessarily because help was on the way. So it's really a matter of getting the timing right and not overdoing these timelines because of the, the downside cost. But on the on the broader question of how the Biden folks think about housing generally, I think, so right now, and for the next, I don't know, a few weeks anyway, the economic team is going to be really sort of pedal to the metal on the implementation of all the money that's just been, been appropriated. I mean, it's just a huge amount of money that's going to require a fair amount of infrastructure to be stood up, both at this, the federal and state level. And they got to make sure they get that set up quickly in order to get the relief out before you wind up with 
you know, an eviction moratorium or unnecessary foreclosures or all the rest. So I think they'll be focused mainly on that over the next several weeks anyway, to get the design of that right so that the relief can flow out the way that makes sense. But they're, they're in pretty short order going to turn to a sort of jobs slash infrastructure package, which will have a really big housing component to it. So I think a lot of the things that you mentioned at the top of the question are going to, are going to show up in that infrastructure package. And I think the biggest piece that uh, is more likely not to be a, a supply side focus. So I think they're going to probably go pretty big on that because they view, I think, rightly that the supply side of the problem is is where it's at, as it were. It was a demand side problem last time around. Now, as we've talked about before, it's very much a, a supply shortage problem. So I think you'll see a, a pretty heavy lean into some combination of tax, tax credits and you know targeted grants and probably some, I hope, thoughtful way to deal with the zoning problem. As, as you know, that's a, a sort of an inherently a, a local challenge. You know, it's local decision makers that are making decisions that are creating a headwind for, for new construction and the like. So it's historically been a bit of a, a challenge for federal policymakers because they don't have an obvious tool to deal with it. But I think what will happen is they will find ways to tie federal funding that naturally goes to these communities to smarter thinking about zoning. So if you're a, you know, I live in Chapel Hill and we've got all kinds of, you know, nimbyism going on. So if, if Chapel Hill wants to receive its next, next slog of HUD money or transportation money, it's going to have to be more thoughtful about what it allows construction-wise downtown and, and the like. And I think that's, that you're going to see that kind of thing play out probably as part of their infrastructure package where they tie HUD funding, transportation funding and the like to, to zoning decisions at the local level. So my guess is they go big on the supply side and, and he made a commitment to down payment assistance in the campaigns. I would guess that you'll see some targeted approach to that. My guess is it's targeted because if you go too big on down payment assistance, especially in the absence of supply side help, you know, there's a risk that you just see that capitalized in home prices. So my guess is they will be pretty smart in how they target down payment assistance. So my sense is that's what they're going to prioritize over the near term. They'll absolutely be a, a rethinking about enforcement. I think their general view, especially at CFPB, will be that the Trump folks were too lax about enforcement. And so you'll see uh, the pendulum will swing back. I think the question is, how far does it swing? My hope is it swings back to the middle, not too far to the extreme. I think we learned, those of us who had to deal with the False Claims Act mess in the last administration, I think we learned the hard way that one can be over eager in enforcement and undermine access to credit for those that you're trying to protect. I think hopefully enough of the folks in the administration this time around were around last time to have learned that lesson so that they don't overdo it this time. Um, you know, inevitably they'll overstep here or there and it'll take learning by uh, trial and error, I'm sure. Well, no, you're, you're, you're spot on. I, I remember in some interview I was doing, I think I described that phenomenon as puppy cradle death syndrome, you know, where you love the consumer so much that you squeeze them so tight, you break their neck. You know, you, you're putting these policies in place that are meant to serve more, but you, um, through the enforcement regime, you end up terrifying lenders and they, you know, they shrink the credit box pucker tight. So, I mean, you have to be careful to, that you're not working at cross purposes, but at the same time, you can't lower or change underwriting standards without taking, of course, additional risk, which I'm fine with taking on more risk in an effort to deal with social and economic inequality, but we can't pretend that some newly minted homeowners won't be successful. So we yeah. should at least put 
a strong safety net around these borrowers. I don't care if you give them down payment insurance, value insurance, unemployment insurance, some things like that, that will better ensure success. But to the point, you know, these policies are going to require private companies, lenders and servicers to implement them. And, you know, and we ultimately need those companies are going to have to be confident in their partnership with the government, or they will choose ultimately not to participate, right? If I can't identify the risk, mitigate the risk, price for the risk, then I just assume not take the darn risk. Yeah, so totally right. So, I mean, at the end of the day, once, once it sinks in that in order for you as a policymaker to achieve the objectives you want in a regime like this, the private sector has to do what you want them to do and they have to do it voluntarily, right? You've got you know, lenders are going to have to make the loans that you want the communities you care about to get. So if you put in place a regime that scares off the means to your end, then you're not going to accomplish your end. And that, that's a, that's been a hard lesson for some progressives to, to get their heads around, but, but eventually we've gotten there, at least administrations past. And the challenge I think on, on enforcement is, setting up a regime that, that whacks the bad actors and rewards the good actors, right? But, but you wanna make sure that you whack the bad actors in a way that doesn't scare off the good actors. <laughs> and that's a, easy for, for you and me to say on a podcast, but, but often hard to do in practice. Yeah, yeah, I talk about it like tough talking in a mirror. You know, it's not the yeah, same exactly. when you're nose to nose. So, hey man, I always appreciate um, you know, your perspective. I'll, I'll be honest that the feedback I got today makes me more hopeful than I was at an hour ago. So thank you for that. But I guess I would, I would close in that same spirit of trying to you know, get to know you better and make sure that people understand a little bit more about you. So I'll leave with that hard hitting question that I, I understand that you're a, a movie buff. So I was hoping you could you know, at least name your favorite movie and tell us why. Of course, you're an intellectual and very well read. So like I said before, no indie films. No obscure art films, because not only will I not appreciate it, but I won't have anything constructive to add. So, <laughs> okay, so yeah, I, I am a, a movie buff, and they're like hopelessly snobby movies. So I won't even I won't even try to like list list my favorite movies because you'll laugh. But I will say, as a variation on that, that my kids have have taken the movies in the way that that I have. And, uh, and the only deal I strike with them is we can watch a movie pretty much any night you like, but I have to want to watch the same movie, which means we don't really watch kid movies, uh, which means we have plowed through the entire Western canon in the last, since the pandemic set in. So my, my, uh, my six-year-old Atticus loves Clint Eastwood and loves John Wayne, and in particular loves Spaghetti Westerns. So we listen at night to Sergio Leone soundtracks, and, and he's got plastered all over his room Good, Bad, and the Ugly hosters. And for his birthday, just two weeks ago, sixth birthday, we rented out the local theater for the four of us to watch uh, Rio Bravo, which is the old John Wayne, um, <laughs> yeah, sure. uh, Dean Martin flick. And so he walks around in cowboy boots and a cowboy hat and quotes, quotes lines from, from Clint and John Wayne and the like. And yeah, it's great. Uh, so yeah, I guess that's my, the, the rabbit hole I've gone down cinematically recently has been has been, yeah, Clint Eastwood, John Wayne, that, that, that kind of thing, which has been pretty fun with the kids. That's awesome. Yeah. I, I think I've told you before, I'm essentially culturally bankrupt. So my taste in movies is slapstick comedies. And with my kids, we watch things like, I've got four, I guess they're all teenagers now. You go back to things like Penguins of Madagascar, Despicable Me. They're all hilarious. I mean, completely different genres, but 
talk about things that you can certainly relate to goof around with your kids um, and enjoy yourself. That's they, uh, they love our, my kids love the Marx brothers and love Charlie Chaplin. In fact, that I could, my kids both like Charlie Chaplin at a point where they could barely speak, of course, silent films, which made it easier, but they would imitate them and they, you know, do slapstick physical humor. They also love uh, Chevy Chase and Will Ferrell for the same reasons. <laughs> they love the physical humor. It's great. All right, Jim, you're a trip, man. I appreciate um, all your input. Thank you for what you've contributed to housing and housing finance. And uh, hopefully you'll keep up the good work and steer us out of this one. My pleasure. I uh, appreciate it. It was good, good catching up. All right, buddy. Be good. Thanks. You've been listening to Citus AMC's On the Hill. To learn more about Citus AMC, our company, our latest thinking, visit us at citusamc.com or find us on LinkedIn, Facebook, or Twitter.